Well, hello, and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. A lot to pack into this week's episode, so I'm going to get straight in there. Uh, it seems clear to me that we are not in control of the countries we live in. The amount of protest that's been going on over the last few weeks across the world, but particularly in the UK and in the United States, I think indicates that. But I think we can take control of our personal circumstances. And I suppose this week's uh, episode kind of focuses on, on doing exactly that. One of the things that uh, I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks with a number of photographers is where they live. In the past, it was perceived that you had to live in a, a metropolitan area. If you were going to be working in photography in the UK, you needed to be living in a big city. And most probably you needed to be living in London. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think what's happened through COVID has made all the people who live uh, around London or commute into London to do their jobs, those who commission photography, have suddenly realised that they don't need to be in an office to do their job. And I'm really expecting a lot of those people to start thinking about not going in five days a week or four days a week anymore, but realising that they can live outside of that uh, bubble or they can uh, prevent themselves from having to commute every day, uh, either in the car, on trains and tube, and they can work from home. And therefore, I'm hoping we're going to be a lot more understanding of photographers who also either can't afford or don't wish to live in those metropolitan areas. I think that could be an interesting uh, development and certainly one to keep an eye on over the, uh, the coming weeks and months. Another thing that's uh, been happening to me over the last few weeks, I suppose is inevitable, is a number of photographers contacting me and asking me to explain to them how teaching works within universities. Well, I suppose this is kind of normal because, you know, I am somebody who uh, lectures within a, a photographic uh, university, within a course on in, within a university at Oxford Brookes. I'm head of photography there um, and establishing a new course there. And um, I was and still remain a photographer. So I suppose in a way, and because I'm very open to explain anything to anybody as best I can, I'm not saying I'm always right by any means, but I'm always willing to try and give a little bit of enlightenment. So I've been talking to a number of photographers. Now, what's interesting is, of course, their feeling that teaching might be required going forwards if they're feeling a little bit nervous about um, commissions coming in and future work. And I suppose, in a way, that's taking uh, control of their personal circumstances, so absolutely to be encouraged. However, I think one of the things that uh, the people I've been speaking to have realised is that teaching photography within an institution, whether that's a college or a university, at higher or at further education level, is very different uh, from just being a photographer. I don't mean by just as demeaning it, but there are an awful lot of extra skills that are required in teaching, as well as a level of commitment over a number of weeks. So it's really important to not get confused between what teaching photography is and also what a visiting talk or a visiting lecture is. The actual act of teaching a module and delivering a module requires a lot more than just coming in and talking about your work. Now, as I said, coming in and talking about your work, fantastic. 
and really useful for students to learn about photography and I'm a huge um, supporter of that you know on the course I teach in we try and get as many as possible as many as one a week come in photographers come in and talk to our students either in person or uh, online the difference is that teaching is much more extended and takes place over a maybe an eight or 12 week uh, process and that definitely needs a lot of thinking about before you go into it whilst we're uh, on the subject of education just before lockdown i had the privilege of having lunch uh, with uh, richard ovenden who is the director of the bodleian library in oxford uh, which is actually oxford university's um, library and uh, we bumped elbows doesn't that seem like an incredibly quaint and forgotten kind of uh, activity or action i suppose but anyway richard and i had uh, a lovely lunch in oxford um talking about his um, passion for photography and how much he's supporting photography through the Bodleian Library. And I really recommend checking out their online archives. They're incredibly well organised um, and they've got some amazing work and collections there. So that's the Bodleian Library online. But anyway, um, Richard, uh, he's got a book coming out and I think it's in September, but it's on pre-order and it's called Burning the Books. And it explains how attacks on libraries and archives have been a feature of history since ancient times, but have increased in frequency and intensity during the modern era. Today, the knowledge they hold on behalf of society is under attack as never before, says the blurb for the book. Um, and Richard explores everything from what really happened to the great library of Alexandria. I'm sure we're all sort of waiting to hear about that one uh, to the Windrush papers, particularly relevant at the moment in the UK. And uh, Donald Trump's deleting embarrassing tweets. Well, it can't be any more relevant than that to how we're living our lives today. And he suggests, Richard suggests, that knowledge of the past still has so many valuable lessons to teach us, and, and we ignore it at our peril. The photographic archive is essential to our future, not future knowledge. Although Richard's talking there about burning the books, I think he could just as equally have uh, titled his book Burning the Archives. So important that we look after and retain our archives and certainly over the last couple of weeks i finally uh, plucked up the courage to do two things one to hang a picture on the wall that it's taken me 10 years to get the courage to put up so heavy is it that it took two people to lift but also to finally delve into the files and files of uh, analog photography that i have to try and see what's there and remember where i've been and what i've photographed as I said, we've got a lot to pack in this week, and uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the announcement just a few days ago that Olympus Cameras um, is going to get out of the camera business entirely, selling off its imaging division to an investment fund. Uh, Japan Industrial Partners, the company that brought, uh, bought the VAIO, VAIO computer business from Sony, has signed a memorandum of understanding that um, will see Olympus spin out the division and transfer all of its shares. The imaging division is just a small part of Olympus, Olympus's business, I don't know if you knew that, which is now largely focused on providing medical equipment. 
Olympus says it's it implemented measures to cope with the extremely severe digital camera market due to, amongst others, rapid market shrink caused by the evolution of smartphones, but has concluded that its efforts weren't enough. Roughly two years ago, I wrote uh, an article which uh, was dealing with the idea of computational photography, and there's a link to that article below this podcast episode uh, on the United Nations of uh, Photography website. At the time, and ever since, no one's interested in anything I say about computational photography. It's even got a large part of a chapter in my uh, most recent book, The uh, New Ways of Seeing. No one wants to talk about it because it seems irrelevant, and yet it's totally relevant to what's going on. And the fact that a uh, laptop company, a venture capitalist laptop company now has come in and is taking over the brands of Olympus just surely points to the future of where photography is going. So I think it's time we stopped ignoring computational photography and started to actually read up on it. Regular listeners to the podcast will be aware that I very often draw comparisons between music and photography. And I'm always talking about the whole uh, idea of transferable skills and uh, photographers being, uh, I suppose, storytellers. And this week's photographer contributing to what does photography mean to uh, me, to him, is Tim Davies. Tim Davis was born in Malawi in 1969 and is an American photographer, filmmaker, songwriter, musician and poet. He graduated from Bard College, New York State and earned a Master's of Fine Arts degree from Yale University. His photographic work delves into formal aspects of photography as well as socially engaged documentary and he is the author and subject of several books, including Lots, Permanent Collection and My Life in Politics plus a book of poetry titled American Whatever. He's represented by the Greenberg Van Doren Gallery and Sikima Jenkins & Co. in New York City, and he was a finalist in the Discovery Award at the Arles Photo Photography Festival in 2004. He was awarded the Rome Prize from the American Academy in Rome in 2007 and the Joseph H. Hazen Rome Prize in 2008. Tim's work is exhibited uh, widely in group and solo shows, and he lives and works in New York City. But also, Tim's not just a photographer, as I explained at the beginning of this. If you enjoy the lo-fi, melodic, clever wordplay approach to music by the likes of Pavement, Vic Chestnut, Hefner, The Violent Femmes, Jonathan Richmond, Ben Folds and Graham Coxon, you should check out his album, It's OK to Hate Yourself, that's free to download from his website. Uh, those names, by the way, uh, are names that kind of came to my mind when I listened to the album, which has been on constant play in the shed over the last week. But that's enough from me. Let's hear from Tim. Tim Davis here, sitting in my studio on a grey day in Tivoli, New York, during the pandemic. By way of answering the question, what does photography mean to me, I thought I'd read a paragraph from this essay I've been writing for my new Aperture book called I'm Looking Through You. So let's say you're a visual kid who can't stop remarking. And on a divorce consolation trip to Disney World, 
you get a camera. Turns out this camera loves everything you love. It sees what you see and feels what you feel. Your camera's a great listener. You can tell your camera pretty much anything. As long as there's enough light on, it nods and understands. It hangs around your neck and holds your hand. It loves to do what you'd love to do. If you feel like skipping school and just walking down the train tracks all day, this camera will come. It's game. It's on your side. It takes some time to learn to press the buttons it likes. But you want to please your camera. So you do. You listen back. You know each other. You're always together, strutting through town, in cahoots or love or all of the above. Eventually you go into a dark room and pour out your insides. As I always say when we listen to back to these contributions, it's so fantastic to hear how different people approach them. And I really love Tim's approach there. Short and sweet and a wonderful use of word smithery. And I think there's, there's very few things that I'm more enamoured of than musicians and wordsmiths. Um, I think the ability to be able to conjure pictures with a camera is a fantastic uh, creative ability, but so is the ability to do the same thing with words. And I think where Tim took us there was on a journey which was so personal. Again, as so often happens in this uh, this strand of the podcast, we return back to childhood. And it's so important in that forming of who we are as a child. I was probably a bit hyper-speedy at the beginning of this podcast because I was desperate to get so much stuff in. But I think Tim slowed me down a bit. Don't worry, I'm not on some kind of caffeine caffeine speed trip this week. Still staying off the coffee six, uh, six months in. But um, there is so much, I feel, that is happening at the moment. And we, we seem to be in a time where everything is coming at us at the same time. So there's this very strange sense of sort of slowing down where nothing is really happening. And yet everything is. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I hope it does. I think also... Uh, interesting to hear there that Tim has written that piece of text that he kindly read for us as part of um, his book that's coming out, an Aperture book, which he discussed, he mentioned there. And I quite often talk to photographers about this need for the very personal when writing in a book. Um, I spoke a few podcasts ago about um, some text that I'd been asked to write for a photographer's book, somebody who I'd known for a very, very long time. And I think it made them feel slightly uncomfortable. Me guessing may be wrong, but I think it did. Just how personal uh, the memory was, because I again returned to that idea of childhood. I also made a comment uh, earlier this week that if you need a magazine or you need an article, to explain to you or tell you or show you what you need to photograph, you've kind of missed the point of photography and what photography can do for you. Photography is a document a documentation of your passions as far as I'm concerned. And that's what it is. It's a documentary tool. That doesn't mean to say that the images that are created have to fit very narrowly into whatever definition you think there is around that word documentary. 
a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about Nick Turpin, and we were talking about the definition of what street photography was and what portrait photography is and what street photography is. You know, what is photography? We can go on and on and on, can't we? I think it's really important just to keep these things open and to ensure that we're not feeling that we can't do one thing because it doesn't fit into that genre. But at the same time, another conversation I had, I have a lot of conversations with photographers uh, during the week, either on an informal basis or on a kind of loosely kind of mentoring basis. Anyway, I was talking to this photographer about what is fashion photography. They'd done some work, they'd been commissioned, uh, they really enjoyed it and they'd got paid well. And they thought, well, you know, I don't usually work in this way, but perhaps fashion photography is something for me to be looking at. Once again, going back to that idea of taking control of the personal circumstance that I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast anyway i think fashion photography and actually food photography are two areas where actually there are really strict rules and fashion photography does have some very strict rules uh, if what you want to shoot is pure photography but of course it's as much a documentation of the clothes as it is a series of portraits of the clothes or perhaps it's even a series of still lives of the clothes what I know is that it's a narrative of the clothes and that's really the conversation that I've had with all photographers over the last uh, couple of weeks has always come back to that fact of the idea of the importance of narrative and photographers being a visual storyteller. However, of course, as Tim Davis uh, kind of illustrates to us, and I really recommend that you do go onto his website, do download his album. I guarantee you're going to love it. Um, it's certainly uh, uh, music for the time, I think. It'll make you laugh at times and it'll make you kind of question. Anyway, what it goes to show is that those transferable skills that we have as visual storytellers, as visual problem solvers, they fit into many different areas. But what you've got to make sure is that those areas you want to develop into or you want to move into, you need to make sure that you get as much information about them as possible. And you need to know that if there are rules, that the rules you're told are the right ones so that you are completely informed about where you're going and where you're going going forward. Because that's what we are now, I think. We're coming out of this lockdown one way or another some of us more successfully than others as far as national borders are concerned but either way um, whether we get a second peak a third peak in in the virus or whatever it may be we've got to take control of ourselves and move the work on and of course as always take care mm -hmm.